everybody. Welcome to West New York Brews, the beer and brewing podcast out of Buffalo. My name is Scott. Please excuse my sinusy sound this week. I'm a little bit sick. I'm getting over it. But with me this week is... Clay from 42 North Brewing Company, East Aurora. And we are talking about efficiency, the golden dragon that we are all chasing. I think I just made that up. I don't think that's a thing. But we're going to talk to Bert Deister from Niagara Tradition about homebrew efficiency and trying to get to a reasonable number before we get to diminishing returns. But first, I want to talk to Clay because you must know what efficiency you have at the brewery. Yeah, absolutely. So we at, at 42 North, we are currently somewhere between uh, 82 and uh, 86%. Adjust that number based off of lab results. Uh, so I'll send nice. a number of our beers off to White Labs. White Labs once a quarter does like a an expensive lab ana- spectrometer analysis of your beer. So instead of a five hundred dollar test, they charge you like a hundred. Nice, and they give you full analysis. So I'll take that number so that and and compare the actual uh, results of the beer. You know, they give you the original gravity, finishing gravity, alcohol, uh, SRM, IBU, everything. Uh, calories, anything you'd ever want to know, they can tell you. Um, So I'll take that number and then I'll go back to my records and look at what my theoretical numbers were, what I think the beer actually was. And, um, and then I can kind of see what my efficiency truly was. And then I can go into um, the software, go into my numbers and adjust my efficiency to make sure we're using, you know, the right amount of malt to get to the volumes we want to get to. I feel like that's really important. For a oh, large absolutely. scale brewery. And what tends to happen, because when I brew on a, on a commercial level, you don't worry about um, how much beer you produce in a single brew day. Yeah. You worry about, I only worry about gravity. That's really all it is. So okay. when I finish my brew at the end of the day, I need to have that gravity within a few percent of the last batch and the batch before that and the batch before that, because the gravity has the most to do with uh, hop utilization and, you know, obviously alcohol that is getting into the final beer. Um, you know, there's other things that go into it, but color and everything else. So it, the more consistent you can be with that, that's how you, that's, that's the main issue to get a consistent beer. Oh yeah, absolutely. And and it depends on the beer. It depends on what you're, you know, obviously the, what the recipe is, you got adjuncts in there, you got non-fermentables, you got et cetera. And, you know, I got, you know, whatever that, that every beer is a little bit different, but, uh, we usually shoot for 83 on the recipes. And then a lot of times we'll end up brewing, you know, what goes into the fermenter might be three to 5% more volume than what we think, but our tanks can handle, you know, they can, the nice. fermenters I think can hold 22 and the bright can hold 21. So at the end of the day, if we, if we end up kegging 20.5 or 21 barrels, that's not that big a deal. When you do a pilot system, do you get anywhere near that? Our pilot system actually is pretty close. We, we're usually like about 76% on our pilot system. And that's, that's great. Like if I could get 76 here, I'd be really happy. (laughs) How are you grinding your grains? So we have a, um, I can't think of the brand of the machine, but it's a German it's really, really precise. It's really nice. I mean, I can, uh, as long as you can translate all the words on it, um, I, I can adjust everything amazingly finite, extremely consistent. And it's, uh, you know, I feel, I think you could drive a tank over it and it would still work. 
All right, so with me once again is Bert Deister from Niagara Tradition Homebrew Shop. It's up on on Sheridan Drive. 1296 Sheridan Drive. That's the corner um, of Sheridan Military, right? You got it. All right, it's it's a really tough parking lot to get into, but it's totally worth doing. Yeah, I know. We, we always <laughs> tell people to try to come from the south if you can. Sadly, I commute in from the north, but if you're coming from the south, if you come from you either Delaware left. Avenue off the 290 or uh, Military Road, yeah, you can turn them easy right into the parking lot after the light. Nice. That makes sense. That makes sense. I'm always coming off of the 190 and either making the U-turn mm-hmm. or making the left and then just before that bus thing. Yeah. Making the left in. Like I said, either way, I'm getting there. That's that's oh, yeah. why I'm there. So you are not only the purveyor of homebrew goods, but an active homebrewer yourself. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And I have been for a very long time and uh, have always tried to keep a, a balance. So not only doing the beers that I drink, but trying to uh, experiment quite a bit in the beers that I, you know, not necessarily would uh, drink every day. So I, I, I went from brewing my pale ales and IPAs and porters to getting into historical beers and, uh, you know, kind of that. And now I, I think in a trend going back to uh, kind of more sessionable beers. What When you're saying historic beers, this last episode we just did was was Grodzieski for... Uh, yeah, the Piwa Grodzieski. Yes, yeah. I actually uh, just bottled one today. Nice. Nice. Um, I have one. It's I, I have a few bo- bottles left over for anybody making it. Uh, it actually ages very well oh, uh, for being know. a 3.5% beer and being a smoked beer. Yeah. Usually my experience with smoked malt is they fade very quickly and they usually change into another interesting flavor, hopefully not phenolic. Um, but the oak smoked wheat malt really uh, kept a, a creamy, nice smokiness over time. So nice. And that's something you carry up there, right? Oh, yeah. We carry that year round, too. All right. That's good. Well, I'll be coming up to see you soon because the guy I had talking in here uh, has been doing three or four batches and he's he's spent a lot of time researching. He's got me intrigued. No, I, I'm proud to say that uh, I took a silver medal nice. last year uh, with that beer at the Amber Waves of Grain. I had to look this so. up. Because oh, I yeah. think I think Bill placed on it, too. And he was he was upset that somebody beat him with <laughs> With another Grojeski. So it might have been you. Yeah, it was uh, for, for years. I, I think it was uh, Dave Johnson from Rusty Nickel that always run Grojeski. Right. But now that he's a commercial brewer, um, nice. you know, he uh, he hasn't had time for, uh, you know, AWOG. So lucky us. That would be funny that he, he was just bad mouthing you. <laughs> <laughs> so efficiency. The reason why I wanted to bring it up is because it seems like this thing that everyone everyone's chasing and I think a lot of all grain brewers, once they start to get the process down, they tend to over focus on their efficiency um, for different beers. And I yeah. do think there's a little bit of bragging rights there, too. Uh, I notice this more with brewers uh, in forums online. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and I think like, a lot of brewers may uh, inflate their efficiency slightly when they're, uh, you know, putting <laughs> recipes and stuff online. Um, but but it is important to consider uh, because if you, you know, if you do have really bad efficiency, if you're down at that 50, 55 uh, percent, not only are you, you know, dumping about 
two thirds more grain every time, but you're also, uh, you're going to have some off flavors with that as well. You know, if it's folic acid or excess tannins or, uh, those kinds of problems, you know, there, there might be a downside to it. So the, the low end you're, you're talking 50, 55%. I'm, I'm happy to say I'm not there. Yeah. No, a lot of, I think, new brewers with brew and bag, I think is where you you see people who are getting 55%, but uh, new brewers who don't have a mash ton who are doing uh, brew and bag. Now, why would you see lower in a brew and a bag? Um, Just because you have a lot less contact of water to grain. Makes sense. Um, And uh, yeah, no, I mean, and that's, that's really it with a, like a brew and bag system or you know, people talk about like batch sparging versus, you know, fly sparging. You have lots of fresh water, you know, hitting the top of the grain um, that doesn't have any sugar yet. And so it's able to draw more out of the grain bed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so why you tend to see more, you know, the fly sparge efficiency is usually higher than batch sparge or, and then brew and bag would be, you know, somewhere under that. So how much does the mash ton have to do with this? From personal experience, um, not as much as, as I think a lot of people think. Um, yeah. And, and I think that's, I, I get my best efficiencies uh, out of my 10 gallon uh, igloo cooler. Um, and I think there's a combo of things there. Uh, it's easy to use. I yeah. don't mind letting the mashes sit a little bit longer because I don't have to worry about maintaining temperature. And if I lose three or four degrees, I'm okay with that. Um, and the other factor is that I'm familiar with using it, um, but it only has a screen in it. It doesn't have a false bottom. It okay. only has a screen. Um, and I think with, uh, you know, with uh, brewers now, we tend to be a little more gracious with the amount of water we have coming in to yeah. the grain bread. And, and as long as you don't let the grain bread start to dry out and compact, uh, I've never seen really a, a major loss of efficiency using the uh, screen. So you're fly sparging. I'm, I'm fly sparging most of the time. Uh, it depends on the beer. If, if I'm doing a big IPA or something like that, where I'm counting on a little bit higher of efficiency. And I think this is a good argument, you know, here to where you should stop worrying about your efficiency. But if yeah. I'm doing a big IPA, um, I want to make sure I'm not using 18, 20 pounds of grain to get, you know, <laughs> 80, 85 points of starting gravity. Um, so I, I really do a very slow um, fly sparge for something like that. But if I'm doing an English bitter, where at most I'm using, say, eight pounds of grain, maybe seven pounds or six and a half and a pound of honey or half a pound of some other adjunct sugars, um, that one I'm going to batch sparge because that little grain, um, if I spend an extra, you know, say 20, 30 minutes fly sparging or a little bit longer on the mash, I've maybe saved myself a half a pound. Yeah. Where on the IPA, it's going to be closer to three to four pounds. So that's, you know, at the, at the one level, that's if I'm buying per sack, you're looking at, you know, 50 cents to 75 cents. Where on the IPA, um, you know, you're looking at almost $5 sometimes. So it's, uh, you know, something you want to consider. Or how much does uh, the crush 
affect the efficiency? The crush makes a big difference. And it's one thing that I always encourage brewers to play with first before they start trying to upgrade to a louder ton and a false bottom and start doing like recirculating step mash or before they start doing like a uh, some type of like herm system and trying to sit there with the mash warm for an hour and a half or something like that. Um, I try to tell them to up the crush. Uh, and the reason is it doesn't cost you any more time or money to crush the grain a little bit finer. Um, and at the store, we tend to crush a little bit on the uh, the finer side for folks. And, they, and they, mm-hmm. they, people tend to prefer that. Um, I think with you know most people using uh, a screen or a good manifold or, you know, the price of false bottoms and particularly like the domed stainless steel false bottoms are the ones that polar wear makes for the igloo coolers. Yeah. Um, I don't, you don't see a lot of people getting as stuck sparges when, you know, everybody was using, uh, the, uh, the braided, uh, you know, supply line yeah. housing. Um, <laughs> I have one of those. To, yeah. <laughs> it's very easy to put together. You know, it gets a great dispersion, <clears throat> but when it decides to, uh, go flat it goes flat so but uh yeah no crush is the first thing i tell people to play around with um or adding rice hulls as well because rice hulls are cheap a quarter pound goes a long way yeah um this is another thing to always give a try so there there's a conspiracy theory out there that that uh homebrew supply companies I, i would say probably like yourself crush it um crush it a little bit less so that you have to buy more. So you're saying that's not a thing. No, no, we, we actually <laughs> crush it pretty fine. Yeah. Um, we, we have a very large electric motor. Anybody who's ever been in the shop and heard oh, yeah, that I've thing seen it. turn on, uh, we have a very large electric motor uh, feeding it. It has a lot of torque to it. Uh, and we try to, the one, one of the reasons that we stayed away from uh, rolling crushers uh, in the shop is one thing we, we wanted to express to brewers that, um, that even the basic crusher was going to one last a long time ours is on 24 years um and that it was going to you know get you great beer and say listen if you're trying our beers here if you've had people you know had beers of people who are getting their grain crushed here this that's what you can expect um but also because on the uh plate style crushers the blades don't actually touch and the grain is forced in with an auger so Mm -hmm. unlike roller mills where it's allowing gravity to come in and especially single roller mills that tend to create a lot of flour as they kind of plane down the barley to pull it into the the mill uh you can really kind of use a you know a, a hammer mill which not a lot of brewers obviously have but like a cattle or corn style crusher yeah. you can get it down pretty fine as long as those blades aren't touching um i've heard of some people wetting the grain to try to get a little bit more of a crush out of it i have to admit that i haven't had the great luck that people express online i've usually ended up with a stuck mill yeah. but i always put it in there dry and i do crush you know pretty fine one of my friends swears by it yeah by wetting by, the by wetting the grain I do notice I, at home, I have a, uh, a, a double roller crusher. Mm-hmm. And I do notice on that one, uh, sometimes especially to do, say, like American dextrin malt or uh, like a light crystal, uh, it really helps with those malts. For the base malt, uh, I don't know how much it's helping, but it seems to come it up more often than not. But again, I'm crushing very fine. So, If we're going to give tips to people, Say to get up to 
something like like a kit would suggest, like a seventy percent. Yeah. Uh, tips to to up your efficiency just a little bit. So so far we have fly sparging is is slightly better. Yeah. And if you are going to batch sparge, try to split up that batch sparge as much as possible. You want uh-huh. each of those sparges. So if you're doing a batch sparge, I mean, I, I see a lot of instructions and especially this goes for like all grain box kits where they'll tell people to maybe not even drain out the strike water before adding the sparge water. In. Yeah, I've tried that. If you drain out the sparge water, fill up the water just until the grain begins to float and you're covering it a little bit at the top yeah. and you can split up your sparge, you're going to get a little bit more out of it by doing that as opposed to doing, you know, all of your sparge water in one go. And, and that's because, again, uh, you're going to get more solubility out of that second run of water because it's holding capacity for sugar is higher. Yeah. Now, if I go online and search, there's so much conflicting info on here. I've heard, I've heard to completely drain it. I've heard to dump it in and not mix it. I've heard to dump in your sparge water and, and give it a good stir. I, the only time I've ever had, uh, like I think, uh, high folic extra, you know, folic acid extraction, which is what people are worried about with stirring. You're under 180 degrees. I've certainly never caused oxidation, but the only time I've ever caused folic acid extraction is in sour mashing, uh, these are usually like Belgian, like triples or quads, uh, where I'm really pushing the grain pretty hard. And from my experience, stirring the mash, although I usually don't do it myself, it doesn't cost you, um, it doesn't really cause folic acid. Having too hot of a mash or, you know, too hot or over sparging. So I think on the quad, it was because I, I sparged too hot, too uh-huh. long, and then tried to boil down to get the gravity up. And it got a little bit, you could taste a little bit of that, you know, tannins and yeah. the kind of the folic acid with the Belgian yeast kind of had a, you know, a funny phenolic uh, of its own. But other than that, stirring the mash, from my personal experience, uh, it's the only thing that you're going to cause is going to have more solids and more proteins uh, inside the brew pot because you kind of lose the stratification. As you recirculate the mash, as it sits there, the lighter, finer proteins are going to float up to the top. Uh, as you recirculate, you're going to use it like a kind of like a granular media filter, and it's going to catch bits of solids as you go through. So the one thing is if you're going to store, you know, stir your uh, – uh, mash, don't expect your runnings to be clear is yeah. the one thing. And then you may have to deal with, you know, excess solids in the brew kettle or in the primary fermenter or eventually somewhere. And if you don't have a lot of space, if you ferment in a carboy, you know, that half a gallon of solids might it matters <laughs> end up on the ceiling. <laughs> yeah. So, so any other tips to get up to say the 70? Cause I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to put myself on the line and say after after 70, uh, 75%. No, do you, do my 70, I would say is, is an honest goal for brewers to hit 75%. One of the things before we started talking that I yeah. went and quickly plugged into my calculator, if you're getting that 60, 55%, you're using anywhere from 16 and a half to 14 and three quarters to get a starting gravity in a five gallon batch of 60 points. If you're getting 75 uh, 75% efficiency, you're using 11.8 pounds of grain. So you've already dropped almost three pounds of grain off the grain bill there. And if you're buying it a pound at a time, you've saved yourself about, you know, anywhere from six to five bucks. Yeah. However, when you go from 
75% up to 85%, which good luck getting 85% right. without, again, sparging a little bit extra and boiling off, maybe doing a 90-minute boil, um, you're only saving 0.7 um, pounds of grain to 0.5. So half a pound to almost three quarters of a pound of grain. So yeah. uh, don't look at it as a bragging, right? You want to see yourself getting 70, 75% to know that you're not over sparging and that you're not, you know, spending you know, extra money on grain that you don't have to. Other than that, I mean, you have to ask, well, is the extra grain worth your time? So are you willing to do a little bit longer mash time, a little bit slower sparge rate, or if you're, you know, a batch sparger, splitting up those sparges, letting them sit in the grain a little bit longer or doing yeah. something like stirring. So the crush is the first thing you should look at. And then one of the Finally, see if you're still having some problems in there, and it seems like everything else is you're getting a clear sparge, you're not getting stuck sparges, and you're getting a good crush. You may want to start to look at your water pH. Yeah. Um, it seems to be a seasonal factor around here. Our usually our water is, is hanging uh, around an eight seasonally i notice it does go up to an 8.2 8.4 wow. uh, at our shop um that's at cold or room temperature yeah once you come down to mash temperatures that may hold you up around a six and i personally do not add lactic acid to a mash anymore unless i'm doing um kind of a quick belgian sour i'm doing some type of open fermentation so i'm trying to get my ph low before i kind of let the beer wild ferment yeah um, i try to use just a 5.2 stabilizer i check it with a ph strip i say oh it's wrong I put in the 5.2 stabilizer. I don't have to measure what acids are off or how much you know lactic acid yeah. I have to add. I'm not going to have any sour flavors associated with that. The 5.2 is a buffer. It's not going to overshoot. Um, and so I noticed that too, checking it. It, it. I was usually having consistent efficiency, consistent efficiency. And then every once in a while, um, it would be off. And sometimes, too, if I didn't preheat my water, those would be the same batches where mm -hmm. I noticed kind of a Band-Aid flavor. So I usually pointed the finger and with a lot of beers that people bring into the store towards chlorine and the chlorine not getting out of the mash water. And so it's driving the pH up yeah. and therefore you're not getting uh, as much conversion out of your amylase sometimes. I had I had a beer that I gave my homebrew club because I, I it took us over a year and a half to drink it. And that that was the exact problem. Just a little bit of chlorine flavor in it that uh, rendered it practically undrinkable. Yeah, <laughs> and it's more often than not in uh, Western New York that if, if you're getting the chlorine flavors, probably come from sanitizing. Uh, I tell people to watch out for Seabright mm -hmm. or you know leaving stuff inside chlorine uh, solution so long it might begin to precipitate. Yeah. Um, but uh, generally, our water is really great for brewing. One of the reasons why you see so many breweries historically here and popping up now is because um, before they were putting in a, you know, a pretty penny at breweries and uh, food processing places to look at the pH, you know, places. And I think you'd look at the historic brewing cities and also distilling uh, cities in places like Tennessee, um, that the water really brought the brewers there. And I think mm -hmm. one of the reasons why we do have such a great 
beer scene and had at one time historically a great beer scene besides just the Erie Canal and Buffalo kind of being the grain hub of the East Coast was also that um, we had really great water for brewing. So I still use my tap water. I try to either run it through a chlorine filter and then if I can preheat it the night before. But Mm -hmm. usually if I can do those things, I won't notice any squirrely uh, pH changes. However, if I'm brewing that day and I'm heating up water quickly, uh, you may want to look at either adding a sulfite and if you still notice your pH is a little bit off, uh, 5.2 stabilizers. And all stuff you can get at Niagara Traditions. You got it. (laughs) Thank you for being here with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Scott. So once again, thank you to Clay. Thank you to Bert Deister from Niagara Traditions. And thank you for listening. If you want to see the show notes for this or check out any of the other episodes, uh, for example, the first episode that Bert was on back, I think, episode two, you can check that out at WNYBrews.com. This one is WNYBrews.com forward slash episode 19. We thank you for listening. We ask that you please rate and review us on iTunes. Go to WNYBrews.com forward slash rate. We're on Twitter at WNYBrews. We're on Facebook.com forward slash WNYBrews. I'm very sorry you had to suffer through my sinuses this week. Hopefully it won't be that way next week. Thank you again to the Rearview Ramblers for letting us use their song, You Can't Buy Beer with Condolences, for our theme. We're going to close out on that, and we'll see you next week on episode 20. Thank you. Because you can't.